Welcome to First Hamilton CRC Sermon Podcast. My name is Chris Schoon. I serve as the lead pastor here at First Hamilton. We are delighted that you are listening in. We hope and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you as you seek to know and follow Jesus Christ. Our scripture reading this morning can be found, <clears throat> excuse me, on page 780. It is Esther chapter 4, the verses 1 through the end of 14. <clears throat> Before we read God's word, let us pray. Dear Lord, we're blessed to gather here again in freedom on this Remembrance Sunday. We remember all those that gave their lives so that we could have freedom. We remember those also who risked much to save a remnant of your people in the Second World War. They did not have Esther's royal privilege, but also did what you required of them where they were, where they were placed at the right time. Most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice so that we may have life eternal. Amen. Esther chapter four. <clears throat> Mordecai persuades Esther to help. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict or order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go to the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead for him and her people. Hathach went back to the reported to Esther what Mordecai had said then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you are alone of all the Jews, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, 
Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can only be had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion, and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing is turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. This is Jeremiah's prayer. It closes the book of Lamentations. It's the book he wrote, the prayer he wrote, after God's people had been carried off into exile. This exile that Esther and her people are living in. Jeremiah wrote that, we're guessing, somewhere 75 to 100 years before Esther. He wrote that as he saw Jerusalem in shambles and the people carried off in chains. And he cried out to God, God, essentially, when are you going to deliver us? And what we've encountered in Esther 
and among the Jews who are living in Susa and among the Jews who are scattered across the whole province that Xerxes, Xerxes rules over. What we hear there is the people who are beyond this lament. They've cried out this lament so many times, they have no tears left. God's silence has washed over them. They've learned a hopelessness. That that Psalm 13 is, how long, O Lord, how long? They've cried it out. They've cried out for God's deliverance, and God, after a hundred years, has not delivered all of his people. Sure, there's rumblings of Nehemiah and Ezra and a handful that went back to Jerusalem to begin building the walls, but most of God's people were still scattered across the face of the earth at that time. They had been scattered to the nations, which was, in their recognition, in Jeremiah's recognition, a direct consequence of their sin of their refusal to turn their hearts to the Lord. And here Jeremiah is crying out, Lord, our sins are ever before us. And unless you, unless you have mercy, unless you relent of punishing us, we will be wiped off the face of the earth forever. And it's that situation, that threat actually, that begins this chapter. That threat is what's behind this. For those of you who haven't been journeying with us, Pastor Hayden preached on the previous chapter last week where it went from one act of defiance and arrogance up to I'm going to wipe out your whole race. Things, Things kind of accelerated pretty quickly, didn't they? This blood feud between Mordecai and Haman comes out as not just a personal vendetta, but a a generations-old vendetta to destroy all of the Jewish people. And the people are resonating with that last line of, of Jeremiah's lament. Unless you relent, Lord, unless you intervene, unless you do something, we will be utterly destroyed. And here in that lament... Here in that cry, Lord, unless you intervene, we'll be utterly destroyed. There goes all God's promises. The people are not just lamenting for their own lives. They're lamenting for their whole story. Remember, these are the people who have been born of a promise. These are people who, who lived under that promise of Abraham that God would bless Abraham and his descendants so that that the ends of the earth would be blessed through them. These are the people who knew the story that one day God would send someone through them to rescue them from all all the sin in the world. The promise of the Messiah would disappear if God did not intervene. We have a few characters in this story, and we see and hear in this chapter their responses to this situation, the threat of utter destruction. And the first one we encounter, we'll just encounter briefly and then come back to him, is Mordecai, and his response to all of this is to put on ashes and sackcloth to humble himself. 
You need to hear what's happening. Ashes and sackcloth is a biblical refrain that comes up again and again, and it is a sign of repentance before God. Woe is me, Lord, I am undone. Woe is us, Lord, we are a people of unclean lips. It is, it is Isaiah's refrain. It's actually the refrain of the people of Nineveh when Jonah goes to preach them. Sackcloth and ashes. It's a humbling of oneself, not just in front of anybody, but actually in front of God. And Mordecai's response at the beginning of this shows a change in his heart. Something has happened to him. Something has happened to him between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4 where, where he realizes the extent of his sin and the consequences of his sin and arrogance and what it now means for all of God's people. He sees his own actions and he repents of it. Sackcloth and ashes. You'll notice it adds another group of people very quickly here and that is the crowds. It's, it's the crowds, not just in Susa, but it's the Jewish people throughout all the provinces. This is a kingdom that stretches all across what was known to the Jewish people at that time and, and the edge of India to the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a kingdom that stretched all the way down to Egypt, wrapping around through what we know as Syria and, and Lebanon and Israel and Saudi Arabia down in towards Egypt. This is the scope of that kingdom, and the Jews who had been scattered across that whole place also repent. They see what is coming, and they go about mourning, lamenting, and sackcloth, and ashes. There is something happening when God's people, scattered as they are across the face of the earth, begin to recognize their own sins and repent and cry out to God. There's a biblical pattern of this, of God's people coming to a place of saying, Lord, it's our sin that's gotten us to the places that you have scattered us. It's our sin that is ever before us right now, and unless you intervene, we are lost. Esther. Esther is full of royal privilege at this point. She's the queen. She has resources, unbelievable amounts of resources at her disposal. She has servants around her. And she looks out and hears that her uncle Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes and standing outside the gate. And from her place of privilege, she goes and says, go take some good clothes to him. Go help him get out of this funk he's in. Help him just get over whatever he's dealing with. Just give him some new clothes so he can get dressed and look proper. Enough of this grief and mourning. Why is he doing this? She has kind of this arm's length response. Give him clothes. Just give him something good. It'll fix everything. We see Esther starting in this place of privilege, but she doesn't stay there. 
we see, and the text emphasizes, just how isolated Esther is. She doesn't even realize this edict has been made. In the back and forth between Mordecai and Esther's servants as they come back to Esther, Mordecai actually has to send a copy of the edict (laughs) to Esther so that she understands what has happened. She's been in the palace, the center of power, the very place that this edict was issued from, and she's so isolated from what's happening, she doesn't realize the extent of the threat to God's people. She tries to encourage Mordecai, and in an attempt to encourage Mordecai, she begins to discover how dire circumstances are. But it's not just dire for those people out there. As you read this text and as you hear her responses, she begins to realize this situation is dire to her as well. Mordecai pleads with her, go on behalf of your people, Esther, and plead with the king. And she says, if I go in unannounced, if I go in uninvited, I'm dead. The king hasn't called me in 30 days. And the emphasis on that is, it's been unusually long since he's called me. It's been unusually long since he's wanted me in his presence. Maybe I'm not in his favor anymore. Maybe maybe the king doesn't want me anymore. Maybe I'm getting to that place that Vashti was at before she was removed and isolated. Maybe I don't have that good of standing anymore. The author of this story wants us to understand here the struggle that the people of Israel were going through. Just as Esther is wondering if she can even come before the king, if she dares come before Xerxes, God's people after a hundred years in exile are wondering, can we ever call upon God's name again? Will he respond favorably to us? Will he extend the scepter to us and welcome him into his presence? Or will he, like Xerxes, just be another whimsical power king who decides, meh, I don't want you today, and ends her life. The people of Israel are in a place of doubt and wonder and fear. Can God still love me? Will God still welcome me into his presence? Will God still take us back as his people, even though we have wandered far, far, far away? Is there room for me? To come before God. Esther, who started out this chapter trusting and confident in her power to be able to affect Mordecai's life and help Mordecai out, comes very quickly to a place where she recognizes the frailty of her position. And it's meant to help us understand the frailty of our position. That our sin has in fact separated us from God. No amount of money in our bank accounts, no amount of education, no amount of cultural savvy, no amount of stability and peace, no lack of threat against our borders can remove the fact that we are sinners 
before God. That we actually have done things which have broken our relationship with God, which are worthy of death. We are invited in this text to feel that same sense of anxiety, to let those things that we so often comfort ourselves with and say, hey, my life's okay because I've got X, Y, or Z around me. And to realize that in the presence of God, those things don't matter. It invites us to enter again into that question and answer number one. What is our only comfort? Is our comfort our position? Is our comfort our family stability? Is our comfort our finances? Is our comfort, where is our comfort? Where do we get the sense of peace that we're okay? Is it in the things we've done or achieved or accumulated? Or is it in God? Mordecai says something rather prophetic which pushes this question home even further. He says to Esther, do not think that because you're in the king's palace, you only among all the Jews will survive. If you don't stand up, if you don't go before the king on behalf of all of God's people, if you don't do that, then know this, that you and your father's household will perish. Your royal position won't save you. Back to Mordecai. Mordecai has some powerful transformation happening throughout this chapter. Not only has he gotten to repent in sackcloth and ashes, but he says two other things towards the end of the chapter that help us to see the repentance that's going on in him and, and the emerging of a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of faith that, that's coming back to life for him. He says this, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Did you catch that? Esther, you're not the only hope. (laughs) He's hinting at the possibility without actually saying God's name. He's hinting at the probability. No, in fact, he's gotten to the place of being convinced that God will save his people, that God will intervene, that God will not let his promises go unfulfilled. He's come to a place where he says, even if you don't do it, Esther, and I hope you will, even if you don't stand up to the king, and I hope you will go before him. Hope. Hope is not ended. Because God will raise up someone to deliver his people. God will intervene. And this underlying hope is a a resurgence of faith. It's coming to the end of everything he could have imagined. It's coming to all his scheming and plotting that's been going on throughout this book. It's coming to the end of his resources and saying, I've got no other hope but you, God. And even if this last-ditch effort of mine of trying to persuade Esther doesn't work, God, I know somehow 
some way, you will be faithful. This is his Job moment. This is Mordecai's Job moment where he says, even though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. This is, this is Mordecai coming to that space of saying, God, you have taken everything away from me. And now, now it's possible that even my beloved cousin, my, my Hadassah, my Esther, will die. I have nothing left but you, God. And I put my trust in you. Do you hear the hope reemerging? Do you hear in this Mordecai doing a, a, an about face, a, a repentance that, that is in itself a great reversal of one who has plotted and schemed and planned and tried to figure out a way to keep him and his people safe and now comes to the end and says, God, I can't do it. I need you to intervene. And then he adds this. Who knows? Who knows? It sounds at first like a, a resignation, a roll of the dice. Maybe, maybe this will work. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it'll work. Let's just try it. But given the consequences of just trying it. This is not a roll of the dice. This is a confession, a feeble, small, mustard seed grain type of confession. Who knows? Maybe after a hundred years of silence, God will speak. Maybe after all this time of groaning and waiting for God to deliver, maybe now he'll show up. Who knows, maybe, maybe just like with the people of Israel who for 400 years cried out in Egypt for God's deliverance before he finally sent Moses, maybe today's the day that he will deliver. He's done it before. Maybe it's like with Abraham who had to wait 24 years between the time God said, I promise I will give you a son to the time Isaac was actually born. Maybe, maybe this is the day that God responds and says, I hear you, I hear your cries, and I have come to deliver you. Who knows? Maybe we've been wrong. Maybe God hasn't abandoned us. Maybe God has not forgotten about us. Maybe, just maybe, that corn that kernel, that seed of faith starts to grow again. Maybe this wilderness exile can actually come to an end and God will deliver his people. As we've said all along, there's another actor all the way through this story, the unnamed actor of God. One of the promises God gives in Isaiah, towards the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, talks about this very type of situation where God's people have given up hope. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. 
you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected. That's what Israel felt like. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God, who brought his people into exile, God, who removed his people from the promised land because of their sin, refused to destroy them completely said, though your sins deserve to be destroyed and though you deserve to be removed forever, I will call you back. I will bring you back. And this is so sure. It's not just the promise I made to David. It's not just the promise I made to Abraham. This is the promise I made to Noah, which is for all the earth. My faithfulness is still intact. I will redeem you. And not only you, but I will save the whole earth. God saying to his people in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their hopelessness, in the midst of their wondering, will God ever show up? I am coming. I am going to deliver you. I am still faithful. Though you have experienced the consequences of your sin and though you have been removed from my presence, I will bring about that day when you can come home again. Hayden read earlier that passage from Romans, Romans 5. While we were still God's enemies, while we were still opposed to God, while we were still far away from God, Christ died for us. And he read earlier that passage from Philippians chapter 2, which really drives home the contrast between God's response and everybody else's in this story. Because it said... Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, even though he had all the royal privilege of deity, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't look for how to save himself. God didn't look for how to save just the people around him. He had in view of saving the whole world. And so he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross that we might be reconciled from our greatest enemy, not King Xerxes, not Haman's decree, our greatest enemy, sin and death. That through Jesus Christ's death and, and being united with him in his death, we might also be raised with him to new life. That we might enter into a resurrection life in which we have the assurance of God's spirit 
that God, who has been faithful, will continue to be faithful to the very end, even to the last day, when the sea, the source of chaos, is removed. When all those who diminish and destroy life will be cast out of the kingdom, and when those who are called by God's name be ushered into that new kingdom, that new heaven and earth where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. This is the assurance that God gives to us. And we, we people who rely on our own means like Esther or who come to the end of our rope like Mordecai are called today to come before Christ to come before Jesus and receive this gift of salvation and, and from him not only to receive the gift of salvation and the assurance that God's love and God's faithfulness is still intact, but to have the hope that even now, even in those places where we feel God's absence and when we hear God's silence, God is still at work. God has not given up. The road has not gotten too difficult for him. He will carry us through. He will pick us up, as he said to Moses, on eagle's wings. He will lift us up out of the muck and the mire, as David said. He will set us free from our sins so that we can walk with him even today. Let's pray. At just the right time, Lord, when we were still powerless, you died for us. At just the right time, when we were still your enemies, when we were far off from you, you died for us. At just the right time, when we were hopeless because of our sins and the sins of the people around us, you intervened and sent your one and only Son. And whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we need that hope and that assurance again today. Help us to hear you. Help us to hear you in the midst of every voice that says you have abandoned us and forgotten us. Help us to remember and believe that you are the good Father who loves us, who searches the horizon for us, who comes out after us to bring us back home, to throw your arms around us, to put the royal robes of your family upon us, to throw a feast. Because we who were lost have been found we who were dead have been made alive by your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in him we hope and pray and live and move and have our being. Amen.